Chapter 13 of Harrington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Harrington by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter 13. After our declaration of hostilities, Lord Mowbray and I first met on neutral ground at the opera. Miss Montenero was there. We were both eager to make our pretensions to her publicity. I appeared this night to great disadvantage. I certainly did not conduct myself prudently. I lost the command of my temper. Lord Mowbray met me with the same self-possession, the same gay, careless manner which had provoked me so much during our last interview. To the bystanders, who knew nothing of what had passed between us, his lordship must have appeared the pink of courtesy, the perfection of gentlemanlike ease and good-humour, whilst I, unable to suppress symptoms of indignation, of contempt, and perhaps of jealousy, appeared in striking contrast, captious, haughty, and at best incomprehensible. Mr. Montenero looked at me with much surprise, and some concern. In Miss Montenero's countenance I thought I saw more concern than surprise. She was alarmed, she grew pale, and I repented of some haughty answer I had made to Lord Mowbray in maintaining a place next to her, which he politely ceded to my impetuosity. He seated himself on the other side of her, in a place which, if I had not been blinded by passion, I might have seen and taken as quietly as he did. I was more and more vexed by perceiving that Mr. Montenero appeared to be, with all his penetration, duped this night by Mowbray's show of kindness towards me. He whispered once or twice to Mr. Montenero, and they seemed as if they were acting in concert, both observing that I was out of temper, and Lord Mowbray showing Mr. Montenero how he bore with me. In fact, I desired nothing so much as an opportunity of quarrelling with him, and he, though determined to put me ostensibly and flagrantly in the wrong, desired nothing better than to commence his operation by the eclat of a duel. If Miss Montenero had understood her business as a heroine, a duel, as everybody expected, must have taken place between us, in consequence of the happy dispositions in which we both were this night. Nothing but the presence of mind and unexpected determination of Miss Montenero could have prevented it. I sat regretting that I had given a moment's pain or alarm to her timid sensibility, while I observed the paleness of her cheek and a tremor in her upper lip, which betrayed how much she had been agitated. Some talking lady of the party began to give an account, soon afterwards, of a duel in high life, which was then the conversation of the day. Lord Mowbray and I were both attentive, and so was Miss Montenero. When she observed that our attention was fixed, and when there was a pause in the conversation in which her low voice could be distinctly heard, she, conquering her extreme timidity, and with a calmness that astonished us all, said that she did not pretend to be a judge of what gentlemen might think right or wrong about duels, but that for her own part she had formed a resolution, an unalterable resolution, never to marry a man who had fought a duel in which he had been the challenger. Her father, who was behind her, leaned forward and asked what his daughter said. She deliberately repeated her words. That instant I recovered perfect command of my temper. I resolved that at all events I never would be the person to give the challenge, and Lord Mowbray, at the same instant, I believe, resolved that I should, if he could so manage it, without appearing to be the aggressor. We were both of us firmly convinced that Miss Montenero was in earnest, the manner in which she spoke, and the strong evidence of her power over herself at this moment, impressed us completely with this conviction. 
a young lady, a stranger in London, averse from appearing, infinitely more averse from speaking before numbers, who, when all eyes, and some of them no friendly eyes, were fixed upon her, could so far conquer her excessive susceptibility to the opinion of others, as to pronounce, in such circumstances, such a new and extraordinary determination, was certainly to be deemed capable of abiding by her resolution. She was much blamed, I heard afterwards, for the resolution, and more for the declaration. It was said to be quite unfit for a lady, and particularly for so young a lady. Till swords were actually drawn, she should never have thought of such a thing. Then to presume that she or her fortune were of such consequence that her declaration could influence gentlemen, could have any effect on Lord Mowbray. He did her a vast deal too much honour in paying her any of those attentions which everybody knew meant nothing. A Jewess, too. Miss Montenero never afterwards spoke on the subject. The effect she desired was produced, and no other power, I am persuaded, could have been sufficient to have made me preserve command of myself, during my daily, hourly trials of temper, in those contentions for her favour which ensued. Lord Mowbray, by every secret art that could pique my pride, my jealousy, or my love, endeavoured to provoke me to challenge him. At first this struggle in my mind was violent. I had reason to fear my rival's address, and practised powers of pleasing. He used his utmost skill, and that skill was great. He began by exerting all his wit, humour, and vivacity to entertain in conversation, while I, with a spell over my faculties, could not produce to advantage any one thing I knew or had ever known. What became of my ideas I know not, but I was sensible of my being very stupid and disagreeable. Aware of the contrast, aware that Miss Montenero saw and felt it, I grew ten times worse, more silent and more stupid. Mowbray, happy and confident, went on, secure of victory. He was an excellent actor, and he was now to act falling in love, which he did by such fine degrees, and with a nicety of art which so exquisitely imitated nature, that none but the most suspicious, or the most practised, could have detected the counterfeit. From being the most entertaining, lively man in London, Lord Mowbray became serious, grave, and sentimental. From being a gallant, gay Lothario, he was reformed, likely to make the best husband in the world, provided he marry the woman he loves, and who has influence over him sufficient to make his reformation last for life. This Lord Mowbray, in every possible form of insinuation, gave Miss Montenero to understand, was precisely her case and his. She had first, he said, given him a taste for refined female society, disgusted him with his former associates, especially with the women of whom he could not now bear to think. He had quarrelled with, parted with all his mistresses, his Jessica, the best beloved, parted from irrevocably. This was dropped with propriety in conversation with Mr. Montenero. The influence of a virtuous attachment is well known. The effects on Lord Mowbray were, as he protested, wonderful. He scarcely knew himself, indeed, I scarcely knew him, though I had been, as it were, behind the scenes, and had seen him preparing for his character. Though he knew that I knew that he was acting, yet this never disconcerted him in the slightest degree, never gave him one twinge of conscience or hesitation from shame in my presence. Whenever I attempted openly, I was too honourable, and he knew I was too honourable, to betray his confidence, or to undermine him secretly, 
whenever I attempted openly to expose him, he foiled me. His cunning was triumphant, and the utmost I could accomplish was, in the acme of my indignation, to keep my temper and recollect Miss Montenero's resolution. Though she seemed not at first in the least to suspect Lord Mowbray's sincerity, she was, as I rejoiced to perceive, little interested by his professions. She was glad he was reformed, for his sake, but for her own part her vanity was not flattered. There seemed to be little chance on his plea of persuading her to take charge of him for life. My heart beat again with hope. How I admired her! And I almost forgave Lord Mowbray. My indignation against him, I must own, was not always as steadily proportioned to his deserts as for the sake of my pride and consistency. I could wish to represent it. In recording this part of the history of my life, truth obliges me to acknowledge that my anger rose or fell in proportion to the degree of fear I felt of the possibility of his success. Whenever my hope and my confidence in myself increased, I found it wonderfully easy to command my temper. But my rival was a man of infinite resource. When one mode of attack failed, he tried another. Vanity, in some form, he was from experience convinced, must be the ruling passion of the female heart. And vanity is so accessible, so easily managed. Miss Montenero was a stranger, a Jewess, just entering into the fashionable world, just doubting, as he understood, whether she should make London her future residence, or return to her retirement in the wilds of America. Lord Mowbray wished to make her sensible that his public attentions would bring her at once into fashion, and though his mother, the prejudiced Lady de Brantefield, could not be prevailed upon to visit a Jewess, yet his lordship had a vast number of high connections and relations, to all of whom he could introduce Mr. and Miss Montenero. Lady Anne Mowbray, indeed, unaccountably persisted in saying everywhere that she was certain her brother had no more thought of the Jewess than of the Queen of the Gypsies. Whenever she saw Miss Montenero in public, her ladyship had among her own set a never-failing source of sarcasm and ridicule in the Spanish fashion of Miss Montenero's dress, especially her long veils. Veils were not then in fashion. And Lady Anne, of course, pronounced them to be hideous. It was at this time, in England, the reign of high heels, a sort of triangular cushion or edifice of horsehair, suppose nine inches diagonal, three inches thick, by seven in height, called, I believe, a toque, or a system, was fastened on the female head, I do not well know how, with black pins a quarter of a yard long, and upon and over this system the hair was erected, and crisped, and frizzed, and thickened with soft pomatum, and filled with powder, white, brown or red, and made to look as like as possible to a fleece of powdered wool, which battened down on each side of the triangle to the face. Then there were things called curls, nothing like what the poets understood by curls or ringlets, but layers of hair, first stiffened and then rolled up into hollow cylinders, resembling sausages, which were set on each side of the system, artillery tier above tier, two or three of the sausages dangling from the ear down the neck, the hair behind, natural and false, plastered together to a preposterous bulk with quantum sufficit of powder and pomatum, was turned up in a sort of great bag or club or chignon. Then at the top of the mount of hair and horsehair was laid a gauze platform, stuck full of little red daisies, from the center of which platform rose a plume of feathers a full yard high, or in lieu of platform, 
flowers and feathers, there was sometimes a fly cap, or a wing cap, or a poof. If anyone happens to have an old pocket book for 1780, a single glance at the plate of fashionable heads for that year will convince a more competent idea of the same than I, knowing in the terms of art, can produce by the most elaborate description. Suffice it for me to observe, that in comparison with this headdress, to which, in my liberality and respect for departed fashion, I forbear to fix any of the many epithets which present themselves, the Spanish dress and veil worn by Miss Montenero, associated as it was with painting and poetry, did certainly appeal to me more picturesque and graceful. In favor of the veil I had all the poets, from Homer and Hesiod downwards, on my side, and forever. I was backed by the opinion of the wisest of men, who has pronounced that a veil addeth to beauty. Armed with such authority, and inspired by love, I battled stoutly with Lady Anne upon several occasions, especially one night when we met at the Pantheon. I was walking between Lady Emily B. and Miss Montenero, and two or three times as we went round the room we met Lady Anne Mowbray and her party, and every time we passed I observed scornful glances at the veil. Berenice was too well-bred to suspect ill-breeding in others. She never guessed what was going forward, till one of the youngest and boldest of these high-born vulgarians spoke so loud as she passed and pronounced the name of Montenero and the word Jewess so plainly that both Miss Montenero and Lady Emily B. could not avoid hearing what was said. Lord Mowbray was not with us. I took an opportunity of quitting the ladies as soon as General B., who had left us for a few minutes, returned. I went to pay my compliments to Lady Anne Mowbray, and, as delicately as I could, remonstrated against their proceedings. I said that her ladyship and her party were not aware, I was sure, how loudly they had spoken. Lady Anne defended herself and her companions by fresh attacks upon the veil and upon the lady, who had done vastly well to take the veil. In the midst of the nonsense which Lady Anne threw out, there now and then appeared something that was a little like her brother Mowbray's wit, little bits of sparkling things, mica, not ore. I was in no humor to admire them, and her ladyship took much offense at a general observation I made, that people of sense submit to the reigning fashion while others are governed by it. We parted this night so much displeased with each other, that when we met again in public, we merely exchanged bows and curtsies. In private, we had seldom met of late. I never went to Lady de Brantefield's. I was really glad that the Battle of the Vale had ended in this cessation of intercourse between us. As soon as Miss Montenero found that her Spanish dress subjected her to the inconvenience of being remarked in public, she laid it aside. I thought she was right in so doing, and in three days' time, though I had at first regretted the picturesque dress, I soon became accustomed to the change. So easily does the eye adapt itself to the fashion, so quickly do we combine the idea of grace and beauty with whatever is worn by the graceful and the beautiful, and, I may add, so certainly do we learn to like whatever is associated with those we love. The change of dress which Berenice had so prudently adopted did not, however, produce any change in the manners of Lady Anne and of her party. Lady Anne, it was now evident, had taken an unalterable dislike to Miss Montenero. I am not coxcomb enough to imagine that she was jealous. I know that she never had the slightest regard for me, and that I was not the sort of man whom she could like. 
but still I had been counted, perhaps by others, in the list of her admirers, and I was a young man, and an admirer the less was always to be regretted, deserting to a Jewess, as she said, was intolerable. But I believe she was also secretly afraid that her brother was more in earnest in his attentions to Miss Montenero than she affected to suppose possible. From whatever cause, she certainly hated Berenice cordially, and took every means of mortifying me by the display of this aversion. I shall not be at the trouble of recording the silly and petty means she took to vex. I was not surprised at anything of this sort from her ladyship, but I was much surprised by her brother's continuing to be absolutely blind and deaf to her proceedings. It is true, sometimes it happened, that he was not present, but this was not always the case and I was convinced that it could not be from accident or inadvertency, that it must be from some settled design that he persisted in this blindness. Combining my observations, I discovered that he wanted to make Miss Montenero feel how impossible it was for her to escape the ridicule of certain fashionable impertinence, and how impracticable it would be to get on among people of the ton in London without the aid of such a champion as himself. One day he suddenly appeared to discover something of what was going forward, and assumed great indignation, then affecting to suppress that feeling, wished to heaven he were authorized to speak, and there he paused, but no inclination to authorize him appeared. I had sometimes seen Miss Montenero distressed by the rude manner in which she had been stared at. I had seen her color come and go, but she usually preserved a dignified silence on such occasions. Once, and but once, I heard her advert to the subject in speaking to her father when Lord Mowbray was not present. "'You see, I hope, my dear father,' said she, "'that I am curing myself of that morbid sensibility, that excessive susceptibility to the opinion of others, with which you used to approach me. I have had some good lessons, and you have had some good trials of me, since we came to England.' how much I am obliged to those persons or those circumstances which have done what I thought was impossible, which have raised my daughter in my opinion, said her father. The look of affectionate approbation with which these words were pronounced, and the grateful delight with which Berenice heard them, convinced me that Lord Mowbray had completely mistaken his ground, had mistaken strong sensibility for weakness of mind. It now appeared, to my entire satisfaction, that Miss Montenero was really and truly above the follies and the meanness of fashion. She did not wish to be acquainted with these fine people, nor to make a figure in public, but she did wish to see the best society in London, in order to compare it with what she had been accustomed to in other countries, and to determine what would be most for her future happiness. Through the friendship of General B. and his family, she had sufficient opportunities of seeing in public and enjoying in private the best society in London. Lord Mowbray, therefore, had no power over her as a leader of fashion. His general character for being a favorite with the ladies and his gallant style of conversation did not make the impression upon her that he had expected. He did not know how to converse with one who could not be answered by a play upon words, nor satisfied by an appeal to precedence, or the authority of numbers and of high names. Lord Chesterfield's style of conversation, and that of any of the personages of Xenophon's Chiropedia, could not be more different, or less compatible, than the simplicity of Miss Montenero and the wit of Lord Mowbray. 
I never saw any one so puzzled and provoked as was this man of wit by a character of genuine simplicity. He was as much out of his element with such a character as any of the French lovers in Marmontel's tales would be tete-a-tete -tete with a Roman or a Grecian matron, as much at a loss as one of the fine gentlemen in Congreve's plays might find himself, if condemned to hold parley with a heroine of Sophocles or Euripides. Lord Mowbray, a perfect Proteus when he wished to please, changed his manner successively, from that of the sentimental lover, to that of the polite gallant and accomplished man of the world, and when this did not succeed, he had recourse to philosophy, reason, and benevolence. No hint, which cunning and address could improve to his purpose, was lost upon Mowbray. Mrs. Coates had warned me that Miss Montenero was touchy on the Jewish chapter, and his lordship was aware it was as the champion of the Jews that I had first been favorably represented by Jacob, and favorably received by Mr. Montenero. Soon Lord Mowbray appeared to be deeply interested, and deeply read in every thing that had been written in their favor. He rummaged over Tove and Ockley, and Priestley's letters to the Jews, and the letters of certain Jews to Monsieur de Voltaire, were books which he now continually quoted in conversation. With great address he wondered that he had never happened to meet with them till lately, and confessed that he believed he never should have thought of reading them, but that really the subject had of late become so interesting. Of Voltaire's illiberal attacks upon the Jews, and of the King of Prussia's intolerance towards them, he could not express sufficient detestation, nor could he ever adequately extol Cumberland's benevolent Jew, or Lessing's Nathan the Wise. Quotations from one or the other were continually in readiness, uttered with all the air of a man so deeply impressed with certain sentiments that they involuntarily burst from him on every occasion. This I could also perceive to be an imitation of what he had seen succeed with me, and I was not a little flattered by observing that Berenice was unconsciously pleased, if not caught by the counterfeit. The affectation was skilfully managed, with a dash of his own manner, and through the whole preserving an air of nature and consistency so that he had all the appearance of a person whose understanding, naturally liberal, had on one particular subject been suddenly warmed and exalted by the passion of love. It has often been said that liars have need of good memories. Mowbray had really an excellent memory, but yet it was not sufficient for all occasions. He contradicted himself sometimes without perceiving it, but not without its being perceived. Intent upon one point, he labored that admirably, but he sometimes forgot that anything could be seen beyond that point. He forgot the bearings and connections. He never forgot his liberality about the Jews, and about everything relative to Hebrew ground. But on other questions, in which he thought Mr. Montenero and his daughter had no concern, his party spirit and his want of toleration for other sects broke out. One day a rabbi came to Mr. Montenero's while we were there, to solicit his contribution towards the building or repairing a synagogue. The priest was anxious to obtain leave to build on certain lands which belonged to the crown. These lands were in the county where Lord Mowbray's or Lady de Brantfield's property lay. With the most engaging illiberality of manner, Lord Mowbray anticipated the wishes of the Jewish priest, declaring that he was happy on this occasion, publicly and practically, to show his principles of toleration. He would immediately use whatever influence he might possess with government to obtain the desired grant, 
and if that application should fail, there was still a resource in future. At present, unfortunately, his mother's opinions differing from his own, nothing could be done. But he could, in future, offer a site for a synagogue in the very part of the country that was desired, on lands that must in time be his. The priest was down to the ground, bowing, full of acknowledgments, and admiration of his lordship's generosity and liberality of principle. A few minutes afterwards, however, his lordship undid all he had done with Berenice and with her father, by adding that he regretted that his mother had given a lease of a bit of land to some confounded dissenters. He was determined, he said, whenever the estate should come into his own hands, to break that lease. He would have no meeting-house, no dissenting chapel on his estate. He considered them as nuisances. He would raise the chapel to the ground. He would much rather have a synagogue on that spot. Lord Mowbray walked to the window with the Jewish priest, who was eager to press his own point while his lordship was in the humor. Mowbray looked back for Mr. Montenero, but to his evident mortification, neither Mr. Montenero nor Berenice followed to this consultation. Mr. Montenero turned to me, and with a peculiar look of his, an expression of grave humor and placid penetration, said, Did you ever hear, Mr. Harrington, of a sect of Jews called the Karaites? Never, sir. The Karaites are what we may call Jewish dissenters. Lord Mowbray's notions of toleration remind me of the extraordinary liberality of one of our rabbis, who gave it as his opinion that if a Karaites and a Christian were drowning, we Jews ought to make a bridge of the body of the Karaiti for the purpose of saving the Christian. Berenice smiled, and I saw that my fears of her being duped by mock philanthropy were vain. Lord Mowbray was soon tired of his colloquy with the priest, and returned to us, talking of the Hebrew chanting at some synagogue in town which he had lately visited, and which, he said, was the finest thing he had ever heard. A Jewish festival was in a few days to be celebrated, and I determined, I said, to go on that day to hear the chanting, and to see the ceremony. In the countenance of Berenice, to whom my eyes involuntarily turned as I spoke, I saw an indefinable expression, on which I pondered, and finished by interpreting favorably to my wishes. I settled that she was pleased, but afraid to show this too distinctly. Lord Mowbray regretted, what I certainly did not in the least regret, that he should be on duty at Windsor on the day of this festival. I was the more determined to be at the synagogue, and there accordingly I went punctually, but to my disappointment Berenice did not appear. Mr. Montenero saw me come in, and made room for me near him. The synagogue was a spacious, handsome building, not divided into pews like our churches, but open, like foreign churches, to the whole congregation. The women sat apart in a gallery. The altar was in the center, on a platform, raised several steps and railed around. Within this railed space were the high priest and his assistants. The high priest, with his long beard and sacerdotal vestments, struck me as a fine, venerable figure. The service was in Hebrew, but I had a book with a translation of it. All I recollect are the men and women's thanksgivings. Blessed art thou, O everlasting King, that thou hast not made me a woman. The woman's lowly response is, Blessed art thou, O Lord, that thou hast made me according to thy will. But of the whole ceremony I must confess that I have but a very confused recollection. Many things conspired to distract my attention. Whether it was that my disappointment at not seeing Berenice indisposed me to be pleased, or whether the chanting was not this day or at his synagogue, as fine as usual, 
It certainly did not answer my expectations. However pleasing it might be to other ears, to mine it was discordant, and I was afraid that Mr. Montenero should perceive this. I saw that he observed me from time to time attentively, and I thought he wanted to discover whether there was within me any remains of my old antipathies. Upon this subject I knew he was peculiarly susceptible. Under this apprehension I did my utmost to suppress my feelings, and the constraint became mentally and corporeally irksome. The ceremonials, which were quite new to me, contributed at once to strain my attention and to increase the painful confusion of my mind. I felt relieved when the service was over, but when I thought that it was finished, all stood still as if in expectation, and there was a dead silence. I saw two young children appear from the crowd. Way was made for them to the altar. They walked slowly, hand in hand, and when they had ascended the steps and approached the altar, the priest threw over them a white scarf or vestment, and they kneeled and raised their little hands, joined them together, in the attitude of supplication. They prayed in silence. They were orphans, praying for their father and mother, whom they had lately lost. Mr. Montenero told me that it is the Jewish custom for orphans, during a year after the death of their parents, to offer up at the altar, on every public meeting of their synagogue, this solemn commemoration of their loss. While the children were still kneeling, a man walked silently round the synagogue, collecting contributions for the orphans. I looked, and saw as he came nearer to me, that this was Jacob. Just as I had taken out my purse, I was struck by the sight of a face and figure that had terrible power over my associations, a figure exactly resembling one of the most horrible of the Jewish figures which used to haunt me when I was a child. The face with terrible eyes stood fixed opposite to me. I was so much surprised and startled by this apparition that a nervous tremor seized me in every limb. I let the purse which I had in my hand fall upon the ground. Mr. Montenero took it up again and presented it to me, asking me in a very kind voice if I was ill. I recollected myself. When I looked again, the figure had disappeared in the crowd. I had no reason to believe that Mr. Montenero saw the cause of my disorder. He seemed to attribute it to sudden illness, and hastened to get out of the synagogue into the fresh air. His manner on this occasion was so kind towards me, and the anxiety he showed about my health so affectionate, that all my fears of his misinterpreting my feelings vanished, and to me the result of all that had passed was a firmer conviction than I had ever yet felt of his regard. It was evident, I thought, that after all the disadvantages I had had on some points, and after all the pains that Lord Mowbray had taken to please, Mr. Montenero far preferred me, and was interested in the highest degree about my health, and about everything that concerned me. Nevertheless, Lord Mowbray persevered in showing the most profound respect for Mr. Montenero, by acting an increasing taste for his conversation, deference for his talents, and affection for his virtues. This certainly succeeded better with Berenice than anything else his lordship had tried, but when he found it please, he overdid it a little. The exaggeration was immediately detected by Berenice. The heart easily detects flattery. Once, when Lord Mowbray praised her father for some accomplishment which he did not possess, for pronouncing and reading English remarkably well, his daughter's glance at the flatterer expressed indignation suddenly extinguished by contempt. Detected and baffled, he did not well know how, 
by a woman whom he considered as so much his inferior in ability and address, Lord Mowbray found it often difficult to conceal his real feelings of resentment, and then it was that he began to hate her. I, who knew his countenance too well to be deceived by his utmost command of face, saw the evil turn of the eye, saw looks from time to time that absolutely alarmed me, looks of hatred, malice, vengeance, suddenly changed to smiles, submission, and softness of demeanor. Though extremely vain, and possessed with an opinion that no woman could resist him, yet, with his understanding and his experience in gallantry, I could not conceive it possible that, after all the signs and tokens he had seen, he should persist in the hope of succeeding. He was certainly aware that I was preferred. I knew it to be natural that jealousy and anger should increase with fears and doubts of success. And yet there was something incomprehensible in the manner which, before Mr. Montenero, he now adopted towards me. He appeared at once to yield the palm to me, and yet to be resolved not to give up the contest. He seemed as if he was my rival against his will, and my friend if I would but permit it. He refrained, with ostentatious care, from giving me any provocation, checking himself often, and drawing back with such expressions as these. If I were any other man upon earth, but Mr. Harrington might say and do what he pleased, in any other circumstances he could not hazard contradicting or quarrelling with him. Indeed, he could never forget, and he would look at Berenice and at Mr. Montenero, and they would look as if they particularly approved of his conduct. Berenice softened towards him, and I trembled. As she softened towards him, I fancied she became graver and more reserved towards me. I was more provoked by the new tone of sentimental regret from Mowbray than I had been by any of his other devices, because I thought I saw that it imposed more than anything else had done on Berenice and Mr. Montenero, and because I knew it to be so utterly false. Once, as we were going downstairs together, after I had disdainfully expressed my contempt of hypocrisy, and my firm belief that my plain truth would in the end prevail with Berenice against all his address, he turned upon me in sudden anger, beyond his power to control, and exclaimed, Never! She shall never be yours! It appeared as if he had some trick yet in store, some card concealed in his hand, with which he was secure, at last of winning the game. I pondered and calculated, but I could not make out what it could be. One advantage, as he thought it, I was aware he had over me. He had no religious scruples. He could therefore manage so as to appear to make a great sacrifice to love, when, in fact, it would cost his conscience nothing. One evening he began to talk of Sir Charles Grandison and Clementina. He blamed Sir Charles Grandison. He declared that for his part there was nothing he would not sacrifice to a woman he loved. I looked at Miss Montenero at that instant. Our eyes met. She blushed deeply, withdrew her eyes from me, and sighed. During the remainder of the evening she scarcely spoke to me, or looked toward me. She appeared embarrassed, and, as I thought, displeased. Lord Mowbray was in high spirits. He seemed resolved to advance. I retired earlier than usual. Lord Mowbray stayed, and seized the moment to press his own suit. He made his proposal, he offered to sacrifice religion, everything, to love. He was refused irrevocably. I know nothing of the particulars, nor should I have known the fact, but for his own intemperance of resentment. It was not only his vanity, his mortified, exasperated vanity, that suffered by this refusal. It was not only on account of his rivalship with me that he was vexed to the quick. 
His interest, as much as his vanity, had suffered. I did not know till this night how completely he was ruined. He had depended upon the fortune of the Jewess. What resource for him now? None. In this condition, like one of the Indian gamblers, when they have lost all, and are ready to run amuck on all who may fall in their way, he, this night, late, made his appearance at a club where he expected to find me. Fortunately, I was not there, but a gentleman who was, gave me an account of the scene. Disappointed at not finding me, with whom he had determined to quarrel, he supped in absolute silence, drank hasty and deep draughts of wine, then burst out into abuse of Mr. and Miss Montenero, and challenged anybody present to defend them. He knew that several of their acquaintances were in company, but all seeing that from the combined effects of passion and wine he was not in his senses, suffered him to exhale his fury without interruption or contradiction. Then he suddenly demanded the reason of this silence, and seemingly resolved to force someone into a quarrel. He began by the gentleman next to him, and said the most offensive and provoking things he could think of to him, and to each in turn, but all laughed, and told him they were determined not to quarrel with him, that he must take four-and-twenty hours to cool before they would take notice of anything he should say. His creditors did not give him four-and-twenty hours' time. A servant, before whom he had vented his rage against the Jewess, comprehended that all his hopes of her were over and gave notice to the creditors who kept him in their pay for that purpose. Mowbray was obliged the next day to leave town, or to conceal himself in London, to avoid an arrest. I heard no more of him for some time, indeed I made no inquiries. I could have no further interest concerning a man who had conducted himself so ill. I only rejoiced that he was now out of my way, and that he had by all his treachery, and by all his artifices, given me an opportunity of seeing, more fully tried, the excellent understanding and amiable disposition of Berenice. My passion was now justified by my reason. My hopes were high, not presumptuous, nothing but the difficulty about her religion stood between me and happiness. I was persuaded that the change by which I had been alarmed in Miss Montenero's manner towards me had arisen only from doubts of my love, or from displeasure at the delay of an explicit declaration of my passion. Determined at all hazards, now to try my fate, I took my way across the square to Mr. Montenero's. Across the square? Yes. I certainly took the diagonal of the square. End of chapter 13